and welcome to the first full episode of our new global health justice podcast, Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards, and for the first episode, I sat down with Dr. Neha Sethi to talk about research during global health emergencies and some of the ethical and justice issues that can come along with it. So let's get into it. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. So I'm here today with the fantastic Dr. Neha Sethi, who's a Chancellor's Fellow here at the University of Edinburgh's Usher Institute of Population Health Sciences and Informatics. And she's also a deputy director of the law school's Interdisciplinary Mason Institute. She's done a lot of work around health research regulation, and she actually co-authored a background paper for the Nuffield Council on Bioethics on the very topic of research during global health emergencies. So she really knows what she's talking about, and here's what she had to say. Hi Neha, thanks so much for being the first guest on Just Emergencies and for helping me kick off the podcast. You're very welcome, it's a pleasure to be here, thanks for asking me to take part. Of course. In that uh, Nuffield background paper, um, you mentioned that global health emergencies might mean different things in different institutions or to different researchers. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? What does global health emergencies mean in the context of your research? And yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think it's it might be helpful to talk about a quite a narrow definition, thinking from a, a kind of a global governance perspective. So the World Health Organization, which is a key international actor in the context of global health emergencies, has a very specific. Um, uh, definition. So it, it doesn't refer necessarily to global health emergencies, but it refers to public health emergencies of international concern. Um, and so uh, the WHO will declare a public health emergency of international concern, which will trigger a whole set of um, interventions. And under, na- under the international health regulations, um, a public health emergency of international concern is defined as an extraordinary event which is determined a to constitute a public health risk to other states through the international spread of disease and b to potentially require a coordinated international response. So this definition implies a situation that is serious, unusual or unexpected and carries implications for public health that are beyond the affected state's national border and that might require uh, immediate international action. But the problem with this definition or any specific definition um, of a global health emergency is going to raise really important questions for research. Uh, For example, we need to think about what it is that might make a public health issue an emergency, um, what might make it a global health emergency. There are broader questions around who determines what counts as a public health emergency. Is it just up to the Director General of of the World Health Organization? Uh, In fact, the the Director General um, during the West African Ebola outbreak uh, was actually criticised for delaying her declaration of a public health emergency. We also need to think about what the implications might be for emergencies that don't trigger the WHO public health emergency 
um, declaration. For example, AMR, antimicrobial resistance, isn't necessarily uh, declared as a public health emergency, but it absolutely is um, uh, an emerging, very, very pressing global crisis in terms of global health. We also need to think about um, other emergencies, for example, uh, natural disasters like um, like tsunamis, like earthquakes, thinking about climate change and environmental impact, also thinking about uh, war and terrorism. So I think uh, it's important whenever we're talking about global health emergencies to remember that uh, that we need to think about a broader conceptualisation than merely the spread of infectious disease. Uh, So you're interested in research during global health emergencies. So what does that research look like? What are we trying to learn um, when we're doing research in global health emergencies? So research during global health emergencies really involves a, a very diverse spectrum of research activities. Some of the research might be dedicated towards understanding how infectious diseases emerge and develop. For example, if we're talking about um, uh, yeah, any kind of infectious disease, we might want to understand what contributes to the development of the disease, how does it spread, how, we, how might we prevent it, what are effective policies for containment. Um, research might also be targeted towards developing therapies in order to treat individuals. For example, during the West African Ebola outbreak in, from 2013 to 2016, there were no effective treatments um, for patients. So a lot of research activity focused on developing treatments to contain that virus. On the other hand, as well as having research that involves highly invasive procedures like testing experimental interventions. We also have minimally invasive types of research like observational studies um, rather than intervention. And then some research might involve the use of very large amounts of electronic data, for example, for public health surveillance, trying to map emerging trends and trying to um, develop contingency plans so that we can have earlier detection of, of health emergencies. Some research can also be very high-tech, for example, uh, with the Zika virus. We had some research looking at vector control and development of GM mosquitoes. Um, But equally, there was some research dedicated to focusing on infrastructure and how we could um, improve the water supply. So it's quite a broad range of of research activity. So... Is there anything that makes research during global health emergencies different from research during public health research or medical research during, let's call them normal times, when there's not a a crisis going on? Yeah, I I think there are some some really important points of uh, differentiation. So traditionally, the purpose of research is really about the production of generalizable knowledge. And in contrast, treatment or practice is typically focused on diagnosis and therapy in order to benefit the individual patient. So the global health emergency setting quite radically challenges this uh, treatment research distinction. Um, You can see how the lines between these activities might be blurred when we have on one hand, an imperative to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and on the other hand, the imperative to treat individuals that are affected in these, these disaster situations. So the distinctions between the patient receiving the treatment and the participant involved in research can somewhat disappear. 
And this can be problematic in many ways, uh, for example, in terms of understanding whether we might need ethical approval for our activities, whether we need to follow some kind of a research protocol, uh, thinking about what kind of consent we might need to obtain from individuals, what levels of risk um, might be acceptable to, to, to ask them to expose themselves to. Uh, I also think that conducting research in the emergency setting can implicate numerous different actors and organisations that are going to be operating at, at different levels um, that can be quite different to local, uh, locally based research uh, in a lab. For example, uh, global health emergency research is going to include involving local communities, uh, but different local communities perhaps in, in different countries across different borders, thinking about different participants and patients, governments, uh, non-governmental organisations, humanitarian response workers, pharmaceutical companies, collaborative networks, international organisations like the World Health Organisation, um, different public-private partnerships, and each of these actors are going to be bringing in their own priorities and potentially their own conflicting values as well. I think another layer of complexity uh, that we need to, to be aware of in the health emergency setting is the, the limited resources that can be available during these times. Uh, rapid response can be quite critical and research might not be taking place in the, um, the nice shiny labs that it might occur in in, in um, a non-emergency setting. There's also going to be issues around timeliness for obtaining ethics review of research protocols there are going to be challenges around study design as well, so kind of questions around whether randomised controlled trials are the most appropriate models for conducting research during health emergencies. We need to ask, is it ethical to offer placebo to participants when there are no pre-existing treatments and when access to an investigational drug is the only potential option that an individual might have to get better? Um, there have been some debates recently around whether we should nonetheless stick to the gold standard randomised controlled trial model. I think some would argue that the, the RCT model is the best way for us to get scientifically verifiable, um, robust evidence. But others have suggested that we really need to be thinking about adaptive trial designs. So adaptive trial designs are basically, they kind of do what they, they say on the tin, they're adapted during a study according to interim results about how effective or ineffective a given intervention is. So rather than having a fixed predetermined research protocol like we would have with a, an RCT, adaptive trial designs can allow for some flexibility. So advocates of, of um, adaptive trial designs suggests that more patients ultimately will receive some kind of treatment because study arms will be dropped if we can see from an interim analysis that another arm is better. Those are some of the, not all, but some of the ways in which um, the emergency setting might, um, uh, might raise different kind of questions around how we approach our research. Right, and so you mentioned there that randomised controlled trials are usually sort of seen as the gold standard because they get that scientific validity. And then you also mentioned that often research in global health emergencies isn't being conducted in labs or mm -hmm. in those sort of perfect conditions that mm -hmm. we might think. Um, so what does that mean for 
the applicability of the things we find out in one setting to other settings. So I think that relates to a really important question about priority setting and about social value in research. So um, thinking about whether or not the research questions that we're asking actually apply to the communities within which we're conducting the research. And that's a really important question for researchers to actually reflect upon um, before they embark upon any research. What is it that we're trying to find out? Um, why are we trying to find it out? Is it actually going to benefit the communities where we're conducting the research? Are they going to have access to any therapeutics or investigational drugs that might actually subsequently um, emerge from the research? And so because this is a justice podcast, obviously we have to ask the question of what sort of ethical issues can arise mm-hmm. during research in global health emergencies? What are the kind of things we need to pay attention to? What's at stake, ethically yeah. speaking, here? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think I've already touched upon this idea of um, justice thinking from a kind of fairness, inequality perspective, thinking from a an access and a benefit sharing perspective and a social value perspective. There are some other issues that I think are really important. Um, We need to be thinking about consent here. So there are different types of consent, for example, explicit, implied, informed, broad, blanket, dynamic, the list goes on. Um, We need to think about what kind of consent is going to be appropriate or inappropriate in a given context. So as I mentioned previously, the lines between research and treatment or response are, are blurred in the global health emergency setting. So we need to kind of ask what, what are we asking individuals to consent to? Is there a risk of therapeutic misconception where even though researchers might have explained that an RCT is taking place, that the purpose of the study is to generate generalizable knowledge, and that there's a chance that an individual participant might just receive a placebo, um, the individual might still think that they're undergoing treatment and that they will nonetheless access an investigational drug. Um, We need to ask whether participants are going to have unrealistic hopes around experimental therapeutics and perhaps not weigh up the potential risks of participation. Um, Some other important questions we might want to ask around consent include... What are you seeking consent for? When do you seek consent? What is consent? Um, when is consent necessary or sufficient? And who do you seek consent from? Uh, if not from patients, for example, what if patients are unconscious? What if they're minors? Um, what if there are different power dynamics or there's undue influence going on? So, those are some issues around consent. I think we also need to think about trust and and trustworthiness so um, there may be some historical um, memories of exploitation different dynamics particularly if we're thinking of um, researchers coming in from wealthier nations um, to uh, poorer nations Um, there may be issues around exploitation we need to think about colonialism for example, thinking about the different power dynamics and relationships between researchers and local communities. Context sensitivity is incredibly important here, understanding what the needs are, what the pinch points might be for local communities, remembering that potentially these participants may be quite vulnerable so 
we shouldn't assume we shouldn't assume that um, individuals are vulnerable. We need to be aware that obviously there are varying conceptualizations of vulnerability as well. But it's worthwhile considering um, whether patients and participants in global health emergency settings might be subject to heightened vulnerability, thinking about the fact that they're going through particular hardships, um, for example, having been displaced for the, from their homes, being ill, having lost loved ones. Um, the health emergencies actually might be taking place um, during times of war, during times of mass migration. So we need to think um, very broadly about what else is going on uh, at the moment in time in which we're, we're trying to um, conduct this research. Uh, I, I mentioned a little bit about benefit sharing. I think it's important to think about um, not just about uh, whether or not research findings are shared with host communities, uh, but also thinking about uh, access to the drugs that might have been developed, access to any profits, for example, if commercial companies are involved, um, if pharmaceutical companies are involved and they're developing uh, drugs, um, are these drugs that the host um, communities can actually afford to access? These are massive questions around, around justice as well. Are there any other sort of examples of when things went wrong in global health emergency research? And if there are, have we learned anything from it? Or what have we learned? What are the lessons to take forward there? Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few. We're, we're human beings and we're constantly getting things wrong and we're constantly trying to learn from our mistakes. Um, I think definitely there are some examples where we could have done better. So, for example, during the the MERS coronavirus and H5N1, also known as avian or, or, or bird flu. Um, these raised important questions around ownerships, uh, ownership of virus samples and who stands to benefit from any vaccines or therapeutics that are developed by virtue of those samples. Indonesia re refused to share its H5N1 virus samples with the World Health Organization in recognition and out of protest of the fact that uh, low-income countries traditionally struggle to access the very expensive vaccines that have resulted from sharing such samples. So often these samples will be sent to um, WHO approved labs in wealthier countries who will then um, develop uh, vaccines, so the poorer countries um, may not be able to access the vaccines as I mentioned before, but there are also um, intellectual property issues here where the wealthier um, labs might then have access to the IP um, for these drugs as well. So in response to WHO set up the pandemic influenza preparedness framework to facilitate more equitable um, virus sharing, so strengthening the sharing of viruses and low-income country access to any resulting vaccines, but there's still a lot of room for improvement um, there. Another example that comes to mind is the, again, the West African Ebola outbreak from 2013 to 2016. So, as I mentioned before, the, the World Health Organization received criticism in the delays experienced in actually triggering public health emergency. Um, but aside from that, there were also issues around uh, the timeliness of obtaining ethical approval. As I mentioned, also there were debates around trial design. Um, 
and whether or not uh, randomised control trials were, were ever appropriate and whether adaptive trial designs needed to be considered. Um, but there are also really important questions around engagement with local communities, which again speaks to context sensitivity and trust and trustworthiness. So in order to contain the spread of disease, it was very important at that time that dead bodies were contained and touching of dead bodies uh, remained minimal. Um, but burial practices were very, very important to local communities uh, that were affected. And there were some important lessons we needed to learn in terms of the need to engage with local communities in order to understand traditional practices, to understand that burial practices were very, very important culturally. Um, so researchers actually ended up uh, engaging with tribal elders. They were able to understand the importance of these rituals of, of, of burial practices. And then they were able to communicate with, with the elders and through the elders communicate to um, local communities why they needed to uh, contain the bodies as quickly as possible and why touching um, the bodies uh, was um, risky in terms of spreading the disease. So yeah, I think that's another example where cultural um, lack of cultural sensitivity uh, could have been avoided by some early engagement. And um, in one of your papers, I came across this term, um, helicopter research. Mm -hmm. And this brought to mind helicopter parenting, but mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's not quite the same <laughs> thing. So could you maybe explain what helicopter uh, research is and why it's an issue? Sure. So helicopter research is a term that's used to describe research that often involves a researcher or a research team from a wealthier country, often flying, maybe not just flying, but often flying to a... Um, a developing or poorer country, a, a low-income country, in order to carry out research. So often the researchers might collect data or samples or both in the host country and then they'll leave taking that data and those samples with them and then they'll publish the research back in the developed, the, the, in the wealthier country. So helicopter research is often connected to it's often traced back to colonialism and practices of colonizers and researching indigenous peoples, their cultures and traditions, and essentially creating a monopoly on who gets access to use this information and to benefit from it. Uh, often these would have been used in um, genetic kind of um, genetic samples in the context of trying to uh, prove a superiority in terms of um, knowledge gathering. So obviously this type of research is problematic for many reasons. For example, research might involve only minimal collaboration with local researchers, and that could be quite instrumental, for example, in order to gain access to local participants or networks or just to help with wider logistical organisation. This can mean that despite the research being highly dependent upon the country in question, the host country, there is a lack of benefit sharing, there's a lack of building any capacity for local researchers or contributing to helping develop local infrastructure, for example, by providing training and access to the latest technologies that these host countries might not uh, otherwise have access to. Another big problem can be that researchers may have 
little knowledge or understanding of the communities they're conducting the research in, and that can preclude them from identifying different ethical issues that might arise with their research. So I just mentioned the issue around um, burial practices during Ebola, but I'm also thinking about genetic research. For example, the Havasupai tribe in the US, um, they consented to their blood samples being used to study increases that were going on in their community of um, rates of diabetes. But in fact, the research was also conducted on um, inbreeding and alcoholism and trying to understand the origin of Havasupai tribe. Uh, and this directly went against their own, the, the tribe's own kind of traditional identity and their narrative origin story. Another issue is that research findings may not necessarily be fed back to the communities where the research has been conducted in. And again, as I mentioned, often they don't stand to benefit from the therapies that result in the research. So in terms of questions of justice, again, deeply problematic. But I do think it's important to note that not all internationally collaborative research is exploitative, not all internationally collaborative research is um, helicopter research. Uh, if we're thinking about global health emergencies, international collaboration is paramount. Wealthier countries have the means um, of conducting research that um, uh, lower income countries may not have. So you could argue that we have a, an ethical obligation, a moral imperative to, um, to allocate resources to conducting important research that otherwise could not take place. I think what we need to think about is what kind of research are we doing? Who stands to benefit? How are we doing that research? So it's not necessarily that international research collaborations are bad in and of themselves. Um, it's, it's thinking about all the different questions that I've tried to outline. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and having a chat with me. And it's been fascinating. No problem. Thanks for having me. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again on the first Monday of the month for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.